chapter 23, please. Proverbs chapter 23, verses 17 and 18. Let's take a moment and come before the Lord and ask for his blessing. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Lord, Father, we do come before you in the name of Jesus, Lord. Father, earnestly seeking your help and your wisdom for us, Lord, to draw near to you. Lord, to receive instruction, encouragement. Father, wisdom beyond our own ability is what we need. Father, you know who we are, and Lord, you know the issues that we're dealing with. And Father, we need your help. Father, we need your Holy Spirit to breathe life into us, Lord, and upon us. And Father, to guide us with the wisdom that you provide. Father, that we might address the issues of our lives as you see fit, according to your plan and your purpose. And, Father, that you might use us for the benefit of those around us, the people we love, and, Father, even people we don't love so much, that we might be your servant on their behalf as well. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Proverbs chapter 23, verses 17 and 18. We're going to talk this morning about perspective and practice. The conduct of people. The conduct of people shows us not always, but ultimately what it is that they believe. If you watch a person long enough, sooner or later, you're going to see what's going on. For believers, the power of any witness is not about the outside. It's not that the outside is unimportant. It's not that what we do doesn't have some significance. The key is what's inside. It's a priority. Old Scottish preacher G. Campbell Morgan said, The influence you exert is always the influence of what you are. No man exerts upon other people any influence by what he says to them, save only as what he says is the outcome of what he is in the deepest fact of his being. Disciples are disciplined. Discipline has to be a me first thing. Otherwise, I can't extend it to others. Otherwise, it is hypocrisy and is of no value to anyone. One perspective of the book of Proverbs is that it deals with our lives as the expression of who we are. Or maybe the expression of whose we are. Important stuff. Have you noticed that God is doing a work in your life? A lot of people would respond to that. Well, maybe some days. Some days I feel like somebody else is doing a work in my life. And you're not alone, unfortunately. For what it's worth, I'm Matthew 6.34, the words of Jesus. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Every day has its own trouble. Sometimes that's difficult advice to follow, but he's right. There's plenty of trouble to go around. But wisdom, on the other hand, is a pretty rare commodity. Some folks are wise and some are otherwise. Uh, Another Scot, Scotman, Scottish preacher, Tobias Similet, sometime in the 1700s, he said, We, speaking of believers, we have the benefit of wisdom made readily available in the word of God. Good stuff. He's right. Romans 15.4 says, Whatever things were written before were written for our learning, 
that we through patience and comfort of the scripture that we might have hope. Psalm 51 verse 6, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, speaking to the Lord. And in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. Amen. If we're listening. Seems to me that one of the most important issues in receiving and operating in the wisdom that God provides is understanding that my life, our lives, your life, is a living, breathing instrument, a device to serve him. Sometimes even thinking device. Sort of like, you know, uh, intelligent scissors that can be taught to do millions of different things and learn and do different and better things all the times. As, as long as I'm open to God leading and directing me. That I might, his purpose is that I might learn to follow his wisdom and not the other kind of wisdom. Because there is another kind of wisdom. And there are very smart people out there that operate it. James 3.13 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Notice that. The connection of conduct with wisdom. Go together. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Now, the fruit of righteousness sown in peace by those who make peace. And what does Jesus say about those who make peace? They will be called the children of God, the sons of God. Isn't it great that God doesn't call you his slave? You know, you don't have to read through the Bible with God, you know, or your, his serf or his instruments or, you know, he calls you his children. And I wonder, I wonder if you have any kind of an idea how exalted a title, that is, for God to call you his child. A little later on in the study, we're going to get to First John chapter 3, verse 1, where John is just kind of amazed that God calls us his children. It's an amazing thing. Yesterday at the Shoebox Outreach, I was there, and gosh, so much going on. It's so busy. Seriously, there may have been 2,000 people there. You just can't tell after a while. Uh, there, were, there were many more people there than we've ever seen at that event before. And it was uh, a huge mass of people, and they just kept coming. And uh, God just used it in a tremendous way. Pastor Francisco there was able to share. One point, I was running around doing something, and I was watching this little girl. She was maybe two and a half or three, and she was so cute. She was just gorgeous. And she was with her grandmother, and she would, they were like playing this little game where the little girl would like run away from her grandmother about three or four steps, and then she'd stop, and she'd turn around and look to see if her grandmother, and she'd laugh. It was hilarious. And I thought, this is, this is what it means. This is what God created when he had children in mind. Such a beautiful thing, you know. And that, that old woman, you know, she would have laid down in front, of, in front of crazy horses to protect that child. She'd have done anything, you know. Just amazing. God calls us his children. He feels that kind of love towards us. He really does. And you know what, folks? I know you don't see that. Because I know the enemy wants to persuade you the other thing. That God's too busy. He doesn't care about you. He's got this and that and the other thing going on. And of course, you know, look at yourself. Should he be really? You know, baloney. Don't listen to that. It's a lie from hell. 
God loves you so much. He loves you much more than you could ever, ever, ever imagine. He really does. And his heart is toward you for your benefit in everything that goes on. God is aching for you and I to take a hold of his wisdom and to put it into practice and to see the benefit in the most practical terms. And, you know, the theme of the book of Proverbs is the pursuit and the function of God's wisdom. And it's defined for us, God's wisdom, all over in the book. Proverbs 1.3 says to receive instruction, wisdom, justice, judgment, equity. And the truth is we really don't know much about wisdom. Let me give you an example. Proverbs 16.16 says, How much better is it to get wisdom than gold? And to get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. Now, sitting in church on Sunday morning, if we took a vote and had you raise, do you believe that that's true? Every, yes, I believe that. But I mean, really believe that it's true. Really believe that. That the wisdom of God is more important to your life than silver and gold. Because I, I know I live in the United States. This is the most materialistic culture in the history of the world. Okay? And you're, you're, you know, Proverbs says that wisdom is to be cherished above rubies. But if I told you right now that under one of your cars in the parking lot is the winning lottery ticket from this past week, and you really believed I was telling you the truth, I guarantee half the people in this room have to go to the bathroom right now. <laughs> Up and out the doors, you know. I can always come back and listen to God's wisdom later. I want to see if that lottery ticket's under my car. If you believed it, it's the truth. You say, well, I know that it's true. But you see, understanding a concept as truth and believing it are two different things from the biblical point. Listen to what Psalm 111 verse 10 says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. Hebrews 11.6 tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. Good, I've got that. And that he is the rewarder of those who seek him diligently. Think about that. If you really believe that God rewards those who seek him diligently, how is that going to reflect in your lifestyle? I may acknowledge the truth of a great many things, but folks, biblically, from a Christian perspective, I cannot say I believe things that do not show up in the way that I live. When someone asks you if you believe in God, it's a loaded question. What we want to consider here in the 23rd chapter of Proverbs, what does wisdom look like? How does it show up in the life of a person that embraces God's truth? Proverbs 21.30 says, There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. No such thing. It's sort of like wisdom belongs to the Lord. He owns it. He invented it. He, he I, engineered the idea of wisdom. He when wisdom is, we understand that wisdom is a group of principles, it's ideas that you can practice or not practice, but at the same time, folks, it is as if wisdom is God's native language. And if you communicate with him, then you speak wisdom. And he will loan it out to anyone that will ask him. James 1.5 says, if any of you ask, lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. We know that the book of Proverbs is Hebrew poetry. It's the third of the poetic books of the Old Testament. It is also classified as a book of wisdom, along with Ecclesiastes 
and the book of James in the New Testament. The majority of the book, according to tradition, has been written by King Solomon, the son of David, with a, a section from chapter 26 through chapter 29, having been copied and transcribed and, and uh, compiled by the men of Hezekiah some uh, maybe 150 years later than Solomon. Uh, from Solomon's writings, chapter 30 is attributed to somebody named Agur, the son of Jackie, and third, chapter 31 is attributed to someone named Lemuel. It's pretty widely held by Bible scholars that Agur and, and Lemuel are pseudonyms for Solomon. That may be. We know two things for sure. One, that the scholars are generally not as smart as they think they are, and whoever the writer may be, the author is certainly the Holy Spirit. Because if the author of Proverbs is not the Holy Spirit, why are we spending all this time studying the book of Proverbs and the other books of Scripture? The words of people may be interesting, but they are really, honestly, of no consideration placed next to the words of God. And that's, real, that's the starting point for us, as it is for the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 19, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So today, as we look at Proverbs chapter 23, verses 17 and 18, we're going to talk about perspective and practice. That is, what you see or how you see and practice what you do. Verse 17 reads, Do not let your heart envy sinners, but be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day. For surely there is a hereafter. And your hope will not be cut off. Perspective is so important. Have you ever started to have a conversation with somebody? And as you start to talk to them, you realize that it's almost like you're speaking two separate languages. It's like there's absolutely no connection between what you're saying and what they're saying. And it's just kind of, it's kind of strange. But it happens. How I see a situation, folks, determines how able I am to engage myself. And it has really huge implications for my service to the Lord. I want to see things the way God wants me to see them. I want to, see, I really, I want to see things the way God sees them. Often, I'm thinking about the Lord, I'm thinking about the Bible, I'm thinking about all kinds of stuff. And I try and meditate on the Bible because it tells me to do that. And every once in a while, I'll run into an idea that will be strange. Like I was sharing uh, with the, the team that went down Friday night. We had a little Bible study Friday night. And I was sharing, sometimes I'll think about being in heaven and worshiping forever. And the thought will occur to my mind, wow, that sounds really boring. What am I going to do? Worship forever in heaven? Oh, man. But, I, you know, but here's the thing, and this is important. When my mind goes there, I realize something's wrong with me that I don't honestly understand the concept of worship the way that I need to. Because if I truly understood the concept of worship, I would be in the first, me first, me first, I want to go right now. Somebody asked me after the last service about, about boredom. And it occurs to me that boredom is probably the fruit of the fall. It's probably a part of the corruption in the thought process in human beings that doesn't exist in the world that God created us to be in. Because we're going to be engaged by God's Spirit and operating with Him and doing what we were made to do. You know? So when I see you in heaven, I say, if you, are you bored? You'll know to laugh. 
You know, that's a joke, huh? Okay, good. In verses, in these two verses, you know, great illustration of the, the weight, you know, the depth of what's going on in, in God's word. We're going to break each verse in half and look at it in four sections. In the first part of verse 17, we're going to talk about restraining reason. The second half of verse 17, we're going to talk about directing drive. In the first part of verse 18, we're going to talk about perceiving purpose. And then in the last part of verse 18, promise perfected. A little bit later in chapter 23, the verse uh, 23, 23, it says, Buy the truth and do not sell it. And also wisdom and instruction and understanding and good advice. What does the truth cost, you think? What does it cost? Sometimes it's free. It can be. But I think we'll always see that no matter what, it's always more expensive to ignore the truth. Restraining reason. Restraining reason. Verse 17. Do not let your heart envy sinners. The book of Proverbs is full of advice of godly wisdom. Verse 17 here starts out with an interesting injunction. Do not let, implying an act of the will, a choice, something we choose to do or choose not to do. Now, people take issue with this. Not all the time, but every once in a while you hear somebody say, no, you don't understand, I couldn't help myself. Something just came over me, I had to do it. There is a theological term for this. It's called baloney. Certainly there are any number of influences involved in the issues to direct or guide our choices. Some of them can be very powerful. The, uh, I had a garage sale a couple of weeks ago at my house. Actually, a yard sale. The garage is too full. Um, and people come by. It just amazes me how programmed people are to be consumers. You have to buy. And you're just you're brainwashed. People come to my yard sale it's been over for hours. I'm putting stuff away. I'm throwing stuff in the trash. I'm taking it to the Goodwill. And they come by and it's like, I have to find that thing that I can buy. But there's got to be something here that I need. Okay, there it is. Yeah, I'll take this. I don't really need it, but it's better. I don't need the other stuff. So, And, and really, you can see it at work and they really feel like they have to buy something. Watch people in the mall as they go by windows and they just something will catch their eye and they'll be like, wow, look at that. It's kind of scary. People have a free will. You know, when I stand before the Lord, we will then see clearly and plainly our accountability for every situation of life. For myself personally, I want to err on the side of safety. I want to hold myself more accountable rather than less accountable. I can, if I can't control my actions, if I can't control my thoughts, who's going to do that? And certainly the scripture is so clear, folks. God holds me accountable. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 10, 5. It says, Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Again, same problem. People are going to argue with you about their ability to control their thoughts. I can't control my thoughts. How can you control your thoughts? I've all kinds of thoughts coming in and out of my head all the time. Folks, it's a discipline. Certainly, if you have never made an attempt to control your thinking, it's going to look impossible. It is not impossible. You can do it. The Bible says that you can do it. So, you know, don't argue with me. Argue with God. 
Martin Luther had an interesting quote about controlling your thoughts. He says, you know, you can't stop the birds from flying around your head, but you can certainly keep them from making a nest in your hair. And that's his idea. Certainly, okay, well, fine. Thoughts are going to go through. Don't worry about that. But the things that you take a hold of and dwell upon, we have control. We can. And we can always, if you have uh, something that you don't want to think about in your life, you know, like right now, everybody here, don't think about a pink elephant. Doesn't work, does it? No, it doesn't. But if you replace the thought with something else, this is why we meditate on the scripture, isn't it? So we can replace those thoughts with thoughts that are going to be helpful and encouraging. Like it says in Philippians chapter 4, whatever things are good, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are profitable to us, we want to dwell upon those things. It's in, the interesting thing about this passage here is that it's really not so much about your thoughts or your mind. What does it say in verse the first part of 17? Do not let your heart envy sinners. That's deeper than your thoughts or your mind. The heart is about the central issue of who we are. The mind, the emotions, the will, all kind of wrapped up together. When your heart is attached to something, it is more complicated. Getting that straightened out can be a very difficult and painful process. One of the reasons Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it spring the issues of life. What is he saying? He's saying, whatever your heart is attached to, your life is going to follow. Again, the word keep there in Proverbs 4.23 implies an act of the will to maintain in condition or order as by care or labor. Now, there may be such a thing as love at first sight. I really don't know. It's possible. But I know for sure that there is demonic attack at first sight. And so you need to be cautious. You know, people, people feel attracted to other people. Just sort of out of nowhere, they have the chemistry. We have chemistry. It's just a... Yeah, there's, you don't realize there's a whole demonic nightmare, a, a, a network of invisible forces working, trying to wreck your life. They want to put you together with some person that is going to bring havoc and destruction into your life. Not everything that's warm and fuzzy is friendly. That's why koalas have fangs and claws. And really, they have a really bad attitude, too. I understand. You ever, you ever see a koala in person? Stay away from it. You get close enough, they'll customize your face. It's bad. Remember what James said, James 3.17. Wisdom that is from above is pure, first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy, good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Jesus tells us in Matthew 10, 16, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. The word envy here in the beginning of verse 17 is the Hebrew word chana. You got to get that. Chana, that's it. And it means to be jealous. It's translated envy. It's translated zealous, which is kind of interesting because if you look at the verse, verse 17, the translators have implied the same word over into the second part of the verse. Uh, the, in English, envy is pretty straightforward. We consider envy to be evil. It's a negative thing. It's inordinate desire to displace others or their possessions, regardless of the object. This word in Hebrew has a meaning that is more attached to its object. What are you envying? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? To envy something evil is evil. To envy something good is maybe being zealous 
having a zeal for this particular good thing. Again, in the first part of 17, we're encouraged not to envy sinners. Which I don't know, that, that just raises a question for me. I mean, what is it about a sinner that I'm really going to be envious of? You know, I don't envy guys in prison. I don't envy violent sociopaths. I don't envy people who mistreat children or people who don't get along with their husbands or wives. I am for sure not envious of people who are going to stand before God at the white throne judgment. (laughs) No. So what are we supposed to not envy in these people? What I think it's really trying to communicate is the attractive nature of the temporary benefit that selfishness will bring into the life of a people cut you off in line, you know. I think they get there before you. People cut you off on the freeway. They, you know, like yesterday, people cut me off at the border trying to get out of Mexico, and then God blessed them, and they got across the border before me anyway. Probably because I had a bad attitude. I think that's what it was. But we, you know, to be honest, even the benefits we see in evil people in the world, gosh. There's really not much to them at all. They're very shallow. But when we see those things from the wrong perspective, they can be very attractive. Book of Psalms gives us some really awesome, inspired commentary on the appeal of evil men. And by coincidence, interestingly enough, they're in two Psalms that you have to read. One is Psalm 73 and the other one is Psalm 37. Isn't that interesting? So if you want biblical inspired commentary on how to deal with envy of evil people, look at 73 or 37 in the book of Psalm 73. Three says, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Psalm 73, 16. When I thought how to understand this it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood therein. Psalm 37, verse 1. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither like the green Or Trust in the Lord, do good, dwell in the land, feed on his faithfulness. Good advice. So in the first part of 17, he gives the prohibition. He prohibits, you know, don't envy evil people. And then in the second part, we have the exhortation. So in the first part, you get the don'ts. The second part, you get to do directing drive. The last part of verse 17. Be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day. But indicates a contrast. Same thing in English. Do, so we can theorize here the opposite of envying the world's selfishness in their promoting their own advantage. Don't let your heart envy sinners. Even though it really does them no good whatsoever. The opposite of self-interest without boundaries. But be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day. Be zealous. Again, notice that the words there, be zealous. If you got a good translation, they're written in italics. They're written in italics so you can tell they were added by the translators. And what happens is because it's a contrast, the, the translators flopped that word for zeal over to the second half of the verse to give us in English a good understanding of what's actually going on. Dr. John Gill says concerning the fear of the Lord, the fear of God takes in the whole of religious worship, both internal and external, and describes such not that have a dread of the majesty of God and of his judgments and wrath or distrust his power, providence, grace and goodness, but who have 
a reverential affection for him and are true and sincere worshipers of him. Good, good definition for the fear of God. The scripture over and over, folks, encourages us to know the Lord. And I'd like to suggest to you this morning that it is impossible to know the Lord and not to be engaged in the fear of the Lord. The fear of God is something you have or you don't have. It is a foundational part of who we are as believers. It plays absolutely crucial role in my every single decision. Oswald Chambers says, at the back of all morality stands God. Every believer's decision is weighted on the basis of God's perspective. Fear the Lord. And the fear of God is something that you can cultivate. You need to cultivate in your life. I need to feed my fear of God. Best way to do that is from the scripture. And that is to know the character and the attributes of the Lord. To know who God is. To know his, his opinion. A really good test of whether I know anything is whether or not I can really articulate it. Can I express to another person my regard for the Lord? Is this something that I want to do? If I don't want to talk to anybody about God, it's pretty questionable whether I have the fear of God in my life. In, let me bring you up to date. Let's say, for instance, you had a friend who was a really famous movie star, okay? Somebody you grew up with, they're just wonderful, you love them. Famous movie star, okay? And you're talking to people, and all they know about this famous person were lies that they've read in the tabloids. Wouldn't you have a desire to correct their misconceptions about your friend? Try and help them understand it's a real person. If something is in your heart, it's going to be in your head. A couple of minutes ago, I said, when we stand before the Lord we will then see clearly and plainly our accountability in every situation of life. i got to tell you, I believe that we can get a head start on the clarity here if we have a living and functional handle on the fear of God in our lives, if we have a zeal for the fear of the Lord. Zeal indicates a pursuit. When you're zealous for something, you're going to pursue it. A dissatisfaction with the status quo. How many of you are absolutely 100% happy with your devotional life? You pray just exactly as much as you need to pray. You read the Bible as much as you need to read the Bible. You spend time with other Christians serving God. It's just all right exactly where it's supposed to be. Because if you are, you've got a problem. I've been a Christian going on 40 years here, and I have never been happy with my devotional life. I have never prayed enough. I have never read enough. I have never served God enough. And I, I'm dissatisfied with the status quo. And this is, I think, reflected in a zeal. Now, I don't want to artificially pump that into something religious. I'm not trying to earn God's favor, but I recognize it's in my advantage to spend time talking to God. It's in my advantage to spend time meditating in the Scripture. I need that desperately. And so I want to do it. And so I am dissatisfied with the status quo. Having the fear of God is not a one-time thing. We kind of like it to be because we're lazy. Okay, yeah, I've got the fear of God. What's next? Um, but the truth is, your life in Christ is a marathon. It's a moving target. And it, it's day unto day unto day unto day. And you, you wake up every morning, you know, the mercies of God are new every morning. And it's a really good thing they are. Because if we took the problems and our failures from yesterday into today, we'd be a mess. 
And so we want to cultivate in our lives the fear of God every single day and a zeal for the fear of God every single day, seeking Him. There are highs and lows in our lives, and we are to be consistent in seeking Him. At the end of the verse, he says, he uses the phrase, all the day. Be zealous in seeking the Lord all the day. So in other words, when the sun goes down, you're on your own. No. Um, I need to look at this scripture with an eternal mindset. And what this is really indicating is during your day, in your day. You ever hear old people say, well, you know, in my day... You ever hear that? See, that's the, that's the idea. That's what he's trying to communicate. In my day, we used to have telephones on the wall, and you made them work with, with coins. You put coins in there. They were called pay phones. And the 15-year-old looks at you and he goes, you're making that up. No, they used to have whole bunches of them, and you'd let, people would be standing there talking on the phone on the wall. That's ridiculous. I never heard anything so stupid. world has changed. Be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day. The intention is all the days of our lives because we need to have an eternal mindset. And the eternal mindset shows up in the beginning, the first half of verse 18. Perceiving the purpose. For surely there is a hereafter. Surely there is a hereafter. Verse 18, again, in the form of Hebrew poetry, verse 18 is offered as an answer, as the justification for ordering your life in a way that honors God. Question, why should I honor God with my life? Answer, for surely there is a hereafter. Um, or, or a future. The word might, might be translated future in this. But in, in final analysis kind of sense, in the long term sense, the, the Hebrew word is for, for hereafter is the word acharith. Okay? And it, it's translated end latter end, last, posterity, reward, and intends all of those things. The intention of the passage is seeing the big picture, not just our puny lives, but God's perspective of the big picture. Have you noticed that people like to play games in maybe not the best possible sense? Um, people start out very young playing games. They like to play make-believe. Some people get hurt when they're very young, and the only world that they can live is their own make-believe world. Uh, some people just like make-believe, and they pretend. You know, they pretend that there is no accountability for their actions. They pretend that there is no God that will hold them accountable. They pretend that they can continue in their sin and not face consequences and go to church regularly, and it's just okay, no big deal. But when verse 18 says, surely, when it says surely, folks, right there, surely there is a hereafter. It is with the weight of God's truth. When God says, surely, you can bet your life on it. It's the end of the discussion. Interesting, when you bring up the issue of God's judgment on the world, which, I mean, God's judgment on the world is God's judgment on people. He's not going to judge mountains and islands. Um, people have a lot of interesting ideas about why they should be exempt from any such judge. Before I was a Christian, I believed God could not judge me because I never asked to be born. I didn't ask to come here. I didn't ask to come here. If I had asked to come here, then you could hold me accountable. But because I didn't ask to come, and that made perfect sense for me, you know. But 
Then again, you know, the 66,000 men who died in the Vietnam War, most of them didn't ask to go there. And they were just as dead. Um, and there are consequences. And regardless of whether I asked to come here or not, I'm here. And I have a responsibility. I recognize that now. I was just looking for a loophole before. People have all these excuses why God shouldn't judge them. It's interesting. You notice they've spent a lot of time thinking about this stuff, even though they say they don't believe in God. Chances are they don't place nearly so much importance on their opinion as they are hoping that you will. But the bottom line is somewhere in there, folks, I guarantee you somewhere at the bottom of their psyche, they know the truth. Somewhere inside their heart, they know the truth. And if they will peek out from behind the curtains of their make-believe world, they know. They take great, great comfort in the appearance that a great many other people seem not to believe in God or His judgment as well as them. People of importance, famous people, educated people. This also is a game that they like to play. People know the truth, folks. It is built into them from birth. And they can be persuaded by a great many things and distracted by a great many things. We used to do, we have a system of evangelism where you just ask people questions. You go up to them, you ask them, and you let them talk. Spout all their worldly wisdom on you, you know. And do you have any kind of religious belief? That's usually how it starts out. Or do you go to church? Or to you who, and then you walk them through and you say, well, who is Jesus to you? What do you think about Jesus? You know, do you believe in heaven, in heaven or hell? You know, and or, but you ask them separately. And uh, heaven and hell, no, no, no. I don't believe it. There's no heaven or hell. Absolutely not. Serious. Intelligent-looking, well-dressed people coming out of some restaurant, people who have jobs driving fancy cars. Do you believe in heaven or hell? No, there's no such thing as heaven or hell. Absolutely not. The next question is, if you were to die today, what would happen to you? I, I kid you not. Deadly serious. If you were to die today, what would happen to you? Oh, I can go to heaven. I'm serious. Is that the, you know, and, and it's just all you can do to keep from, like, laughing out loud. Okay, you don't believe in heaven or hell, but you're going there. What this shows, people in your culture are accustomed to carrying around in their minds mutually inconsistent ideas, mutually exclusive ideas that don't go along together. And they believe lots and lots of things that are not compatible. And so when they tell themselves they believe in God or don't believe in God as it's convenient or their situation, they're involved in an adulterous affair. There is definitely no God. They're out serving people and doing good. God's going to smile upon this. And they do that. They do. And so, just, you know, heads up. When you're talking to somebody, don't try and make them make sense in their thoughts. Let the Holy Spirit of God deal with that. Let Him sort it out. You just point them to the truth and let God deal with it. People are clever, you know. I mean, you're going to tell them these things and they have barricaded themselves in a make-believe world. And they will say to you, no, 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 you're the one. You're barricaded in your make-believe world with God and angels and the devil. And those are all just imagination. You know what? I don't have to prove anything. It's not my job to win the argument. People don't come to Christ because I out-argue them. It doesn't work that way. I just point people to the truth. In a couple of minutes, we're all going to be out of here and it's going to be plain to see. Are God and angels the imagination of man? Or is it the idea of people coming from monkeys? Or is it maybe our brother from uh, 
Harvard University, Stephen Jay Gould, who came up with the uh, punctuated equilibrium theory where uh, snakes laid eggs and birds came out. And that sounds a little make-believe to me. He's a believer now. He passed away several years ago. Um, personally, I have an advantage. I, I, you know, I, not having grown up in church, I, I believed what they believe. I absolutely, I propagated what they say they believe wholeheartedly. I knew there was no God. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> every once in a while you hear of a person that was a pastor or belonged to a particular church, and now they're an atheist. They're out there crusading, you know. Yeah, I went to Calvary Chapel. I'm an atheist. I know that you guys are all brainwashing. Don't you believe it? Don't believe it. No person who has ever, ever heard the voice of God will ever have the luxury of unknowing the truth. So either this person was not born again, had no sincere exposure to the Holy Spirit of God by which God was revealed to them, or they're, they've got some kind of other agenda going. They may not live it. They may understand, not entirely understand what took place in their life, but they know. Even if they tell themselves that they don't, they know. For surely there is a hereafter. Hereafter, the latter end, our future. There is a reckoning to come where all will stand before the Lord. You know, since I was about 12 years old, it has been a source of some concern to me to consider that one way or another, I'm leaving this world. Do you remember the first time you ever thought that? You go, wow, I'm going to die. It's kind of weird. There is an end to this world for me, and there's no negotiating. There's no deterrence. It's a fact of life. Whatever it will be, according to the teaching of the Scripture, it's going to be the determining factor in what will be the most significant aspect of my life, meaning eternity. This part of my life, not that significant. That part of my life is everything. Now, the decisions and the details of my situation been set in motion a long time before I leave this world, but when I leave this world, there will be a final punctuation to the life I've had here. And while the things that I've done and the things that I have failed to do cause me some real concern, the Word of God gives me real hope. The Word of God gives hope. And our future in the presence of the Lord is not something that we should shy away from. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, Behold, wrap your head around. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it didn't know Him. Beloved, now we are the children of God. And it hasn't yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him for we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. We don't shy away from the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord is what we are here for. Colossians 3.1, it says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth, for you died. And your life, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The hereafter is where we shine, literally shine. 
Some of you here today see your lives as without significance in the scope of God's plan. And you can't imagine how you would have contributed in any way. I have some news for you. I guarantee you that God has done things with your life and through your life that you would never believe. Wait until he shows you. When God sits you down and he shows you how he used your prayers, how he used your life, how he anointed you with his spirit, you are going to be amazed. The truth be told, even though I am waiting earnestly for the coming of the Lord, I don't need to wait on heaven to appreciate God's purpose. I can see the practical benefits. And, and that, you know, that's really important. God communicates. It is his nature. First and foremost, from the scripture. And the scripture is the guidebook through which we confirm any and all direction that the Lord's given us. But the Lord will speak to you in all kinds of ways, amazing, beautiful ways every single day. If he teaches, if we will listen, he will teach us. At the, uh, at the outreach yesterday, uh, Donna Moore was passing and distributing gifts to these little kids. And the four and five-year-old kids were coming through and they're passing out these shoe boxes. And it's a lot of fun. Kids, I mean, you know, kids are kids, but these kids are just beautiful. And uh, Donna gave a, a shoe box to a little four-year-old girl and she took the shoe box and she just kind of hugged on it, grabbed it, you know, and she looked at Donna and she, she motioned for Donna to come over to her. And Donna went over there and thought she, she wanted to tell her something that Donna bent over close to her and she kissed her. Yeah. If we listen, he will teach us. He'll instruct us. Just when you think you know what you're doing, the Lord will teach you something new. If you're listening. One day, and very soon, you and I are going to enter his presence. You say, well, how do you do that? God's omnipresent. How can you enter his presence? I don't know. I know he's everywhere. But I can't really answer, but the, when the day of the Lord comes, it will be a very different thing for those, those people that have these many, many days been praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You get to see that answered. What a thing. We will see the promise perfected. The last part of verse 18. And your hope will not be cut off. What is your hope? Not specifically. You know, some of you, some of you guys here today are just overwhelmed with issues. And I know the holiday season is so difficult for so many people. And sometimes things happen in your life where you almost cannot think about anything else. You just, it's just problem, 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 problem. And, you know, it's almost like you don't have a moment's peace. But Jesus is the answer to every problem. What do you think about when you think about the day when we come into his presence? I think a, a lot of people are, are just in love with the idea of escaping the trouble of this place, while some are maybe even terrified to go. I Personally, I've never been much for ceremonies. And I guarantee you this is going to be a big ceremony. I really liked my wedding. And my son's wedding was a lot of fun. I like that. But this is one ceremony I don't want to miss a single second of. I have some very vague ideas about what I think is going to take place. But I'll be the first one to tell you I don't really know. Just like in everything else these days, I'm trying to learn not to look for my plan so much as to wait for his. His plan is always better. But you do have to wait. 
it's important. That you, do you think maybe we need to wait? There's something that he's doing inside of us as we wait for his plan. Notice here the last part of verse 18, that it is your hope. Okay? It's not everybody's hope. It's not universal hope or the hope of mankind or the hope of creation. It may actually qualify under some of those categories, but here, I think it's very, in a very important way, it is your hope. It's personal, like he is personal. Because your hope is very different than the hope of other people because you are different. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again, born us again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Not reserved in heaven for everybody. Reserved for you. Notice that. The living hope. His name is Jesus. The only thing that you've got to do is show up. He is waiting for you. Do not lose sight of that fact. Do not let that escape your vision for a moment. Don't lose sight of Jesus. Hebrews 12.2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Philippians 1.6 says, being confident that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. The scripture tells us that our hope is not like other things, folks. Our hope is not an object or an event as such. You see, our hope is a person. And that is what we are told in 1 Timothy 1.1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. He is our hope. So when it says here that your hope will not be cut off, what does that mean? What does this mean? Obviously, you understand what cut off means in English. It means to separate. Um, the Hebrew word is, is the word kalath. And it, it translated has a number of different, can mean to be eliminated, to destroy something, to cut down. It can also mean to kill, to physically kill. One of the ideas it communicates is death. And that's really interesting to me. Because at the time of Solomon's writing in, here in chapter 23, that's very prophetic. Your hope will not be cut off. 300 years later, during the time of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, the prophecy of the 70 weeks. Listen to Daniel 9.26. After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. But your hope will not be cut off. So even though he was cut off, what does Peter say in the very first sermon in Acts chapter 2, 24? He says of Jesus, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Our hope cannot be held by the power of death. Our hope will not be cut off. You see, he is the word of God. His word has power to affect our thoughts and our hearts to guide us in the way if, if we're listening. Restraining reason. Do not let your heart envy sinners because the benefits 
that this world can offer you are not to be compared with the blessing that the Lord has offered us, even in this world. Direct your drive. Be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day. A relationship with Christ is characterized by a God-fearing conduct and consistency. Consistency doesn't mean perfection. Consistency means you keep getting up. Perceiving the purpose. For there, for surely there is a hereafter. The certainty of God's future purpose is a point of demonstrable fact. And finally, the promise perfected. And your hope will not be cut off. Because your hope is a person. And not just any person, but the one that purchased you from among the dead. Because he is the good shepherd. Because we hear his voice. Proverbs 23, buy the truth and do not sell it. And wisdom and instruction and understanding. Folks, tune your ear to the voice of the Lord. You know, you, you, you become attentive to certain sounds, certain voices. The way people walk. When you're on one side of your house and somebody's walking across, you know who it is. You can just hear by the way they walk. You know exactly who it is. The other day I was, I was in Xavier's office talking to Tim Anderson, who did the midweek Thursday night for us here. And I was talking to him and he was sharing about some things that had taken place and having a conversation. And uh, I could hear a little child's voice going down the hallway. It's my granddaughter. And I know her voice. I can hear her voice a block away. I know exactly what. And she doesn't have to say much. Just a couple little sounds. You know, I know. So, oh, open the door. Bring her in and introduce her to Tim. I know he wanted to meet her. Um, <laughs> tune your ear to the voice of God's Holy Spirit. In some ways, the Holy Spirit's kind of like a radio. You've got the volume control. It's in your hand. Turn it up or turn it down. You turn it down. You know, God just doesn't talk to me. I don't know what's going on. Turn up the volume control. Listen. Listen to him. I would rather step out in a situation where I thought God was leading me and be wrong than hesitate to trust the voice of the Lord. He's the good shepherd. His sheep hear his voice. That's us. Father, we thank you, Lord, for being here with us today. We thank you for your word. And, Father, for breathing life, your life, inside of us. Lord, Father, bring us to the place, Father, where... Unlike everything else in this world that is dead and dying, Father, we have the life of Christ. And Lord, we have the mind of Christ. Lord, we can hear your voice speaking to us. And Lord, we want to pray for your spirit to work directing and guiding us throughout the next few weeks, Lord, that, Father, we would submit ourselves to you. Lord, that we would be filled with your spirit, bold to step out and be willing to minister the gospel Father, for all we know, we're never going to make it out of 2014. But Lord, we are committed to you. It's your plan we want to follow and not our own. And our prayer is, Lord, that you will faithfully guide and direct us in all that we do. As we're all praying together this morning and every head bowed, if today the Lord has spoken to your heart and you have never received Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, if you want to have a personal relationship with the Lord, if you want to hear his voice, the Bible says that he will reveal himself to you. 
that He will speak to you. He and His Father will come and make their home with you if you will obey His Word, if you will humble yourself, if you will acknowledge that you're a sinner, He will save you. If you believe that Christ died for you on the cross, the Lord will touch your heart and begin an amazing work. And I want to give you an opportunity before you leave today, even if you're watching over the Internet, to pray with me, to pray and ask Christ to forgive you, to ask Him to give you that new life. And if that's your desire, please repeat this prayer after me. Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. I want to ask you to forgive me for all of my sins. I believe that Jesus died for me on the cross. And I believe that he rose from the dead. Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me a new life. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.